Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight, we continue our story, The Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. Once more in the same year, the Viking went forth, though the storms of autumn had already commenced to roar. He went with his warriors to the coast of Britain. He said that it was but an excursion of pleasure across the water, so his wife remained at home with the little girl. After a while, it is quite certain the foster mother began to love the poor frog, with its gentle eyes and its deep sighs, even better than the little beauty who bit and fought with all around her. The heavy, damp mists of autumn, which destroyed the leaves of the wood, had already fallen upon forest and heath. Feathers of plucked birds, as they call the snow, flew about in thick showers, and winter was coming. The sparrows took possession of the stork's nest, and conversed about the absent owners in their own fashion. And they, the stork pair, and all their young ones, where were they staying now? The storks might have been found in the land of Egypt, where the sun's rays shone forth bright and warm, as it does here at midsummer. Tamarins and acacias were in full bloom all over the country. The crescent of Mahomet glittered brightly from the cupolas of the mosques, and on the slender pinnacles sat many of the storks, resting after their long journey. Swarms of them took divided possession of the nests, nests which lay close to each other between the venerable columns and crowded the arches of temples in forgotten cities. The date and the palm lifted themselves as a screen or as a sunshade over them. The gray pyramids looked like broken shadows in the clear air, and the far-off desert, where the ostrich wheels its rapid flight, and the lion, with his subtle eyes, gazes at the marble sphinx, which lies half-buried in sand. The waters of the Nile had retreated, and the whole bed of the river was covered with frogs, which was a most acceptable prospect for the stork families. The young storks thought their own eyes deceived them. Everything around appeared so beautiful. It is always like this here, and this is how we live in our warm country, said the stork mama, and the thought made the young ones almost beside themselves with pleasure. Is there anything more to see, they asked. Are we going farther into the country? There is nothing further for us to see, answered the stork mama. Beyond this delightful region, there are immense forests, where the branches of the trees entwine round each other, while prickly, creeping plants cover the paths, and only an elephant could force a passage for himself with his great feet. The snakes are too large, and the lizards are too lively for us to catch. Then there is the desert. If you went there, your eyes would soon be full of sand with the lightest breeze. And if it should blow great guns, you would most likely find yourself in a sand drift. Here is the best place for you, where there are frogs and locusts. Here I shall remain, and so must you. And so they stayed. The parents sat on the nest in the slender minaret, and rested 
yet still were busily employed in cleaning and smoothing their feathers and in sharpening their beaks against their red stockings. Then they would stretch out their necks, salute each other, and gravely raise their heads with a high-polished forehead and soft, smooth feathers, while their brown eyes shone with intelligence. The female young ones strutted about amid the moist rushes, glancing at the other young storks and making acquaintances, and swallowing a frog at every third step, or tossing a little snake about with their beaks, in a way they considered very becoming, and besides, it tasted very good. The young male storks soon began to quarrel. They struck at each other with their wings, and pecked with their beaks till the blood came. And in this manner many of the young ladies and gentlemen were betrothed to each other. It was, of course, what they wanted, and indeed what they lived for. Then they returned to a nest, and there the quarreling began afresh. For in hot countries, people are almost all violent and passionate. But for all that it was pleasant, especially for the old people, who watched them with great joy, all that the young ones did suited them. Every day there was sunshine here, plenty to eat, and nothing to think of but pleasure. But in the rich castle of their Egyptian host, as they called him, there was not to be found. The rich and mighty lord of the castle lay on his couch, in the midst of the great hall, with its many-colored walls looking like the center of a great tulip. But he was stiff and powerless in all his limbs, and lay stretched out like a mummy. His family and servants stood round him. He was not dead, although he could scarcely be said to live. The healing more flower from the north, which was to have been found and brought to him by her, who loved him so well, had not arrived. His young and beautiful daughter, who, in swan's plumage, had flown over land and seas to the distant north, had never returned. She is dead, so the two swan maidens had said when they came home, and they made up quite a story about her. And this is what they told. We three flew away together through the air, said they. A hunter caught sight of us and shot at us with an arrow. The arrow struck our young friend and sister, and slowly singing her farewell song, she sank down, a dying swan, into the forest lake. On the shores of the lake, under a spreading birch tree, we laid her in the cold earth. We had our revenge. We bound fire under the wings of a swallow, who had a nest on the thatched roof of the huntsman. The house took fire and burst into flames. The hunter was burnt with the house, and the light was reflected over the sea as far as the spreading birch, beneath which we laid her sleeping dust. She will never return to the land of Egypt. And then they both wept. And Stork Papa, who heard the story, snapped with his beak so that it might be heard a long way off. Deceit! and lies, cried he. I should like to run my beak deep into their chests, and perhaps break it off, said the mama stork. Then what a sight you would be. Think first of yourself and then of your family. All others are nothing to us. Yes, I know, said the stork papa. But tomorrow I can easily place myself on the edge of the open cupola, when the learned and wise men assemble to consult on the state of the sick man, perhaps they may come a little nearer to the truth. And the learned and wise men assembled together and talked a great deal on every point, but the stork could make no sense out of anything they said, 
Neither were there any good results from their consultations, either for the sick man or for his daughter in the marshy heath. When we listen to what people say in this world, we shall hear a great deal. But it is an advantage to know what has been said and done before. When we listen to a conversation, the stork did, and we know at least as much as he, the stork. Love is a life-giver. The highest love produces the highest life. Only through love can the sick man be cured. This had been said by many, and this had been said by many, and even the learned men acknowledged that it was a wise saying. What a beautiful thought, exclaimed the Papa Stork immediately. I don't quite understand it, said the Mama Stork, when her husband repeated it. However, it is not my fault, but the fault of the thought, whatever it may be. I have something else to think of. Now the learned man had spoken also of love between this one and that one, of the difference of the love which we have for our neighbor, to the love that exists between parents and children, of the love of the plant for the light, and how the germ springs forth when the sunbeam kisses the ground. All these things were so elaborately and learnedly explained that it was impossible for Stork Papa to follow it, much less to talk about it. His thoughts on the subject quite weighed him down, He stood the whole of the following day on one leg, with half-shut eyes, thinking deeply. So much learning was quite a heavy weight for him to carry. One thing, however, the Papa Stork could understand. Everyone, high and low, had from their inmost hearts expressed their opinion that it was a great misfortune for so many thousands of people, the whole country indeed, to have this man so sick, with no hopes of his recovery. And what joy and blessing it would spread around if he could by any means be cured. But where bloomed the flower that could bring him health? They had searched for it everywhere, in learned writings, in the shining stars, in the weather and wind. Inquiries had been made in every byway that could be thought of, until at last a wise and learned man has asserted, as we have been already told, that love, the life-giver, could alone give new life to a father. And in saying this, they had overdone it, and had said more than they understood themselves. They repeated it, and wrote it down as a recipe. Love is a life-giver. But how could such a recipe be prepared? That was a difficulty they would not overcome. At last, it was decided that help could only come from the princess herself, whose whole soul was wrapped up in her father, especially as a plan had been adopted by her to enable her to obtain a remedy. More than a year had passed since the princess had set out at night when the light of the young moon was soon lost beneath the horizon. She had gone to the marble sphinx in the desert, shaking the sand from her sandals, and then passed through the long passage which leads to the center of one of the great pyramids, where the mighty kings of antiquity, surrounded with pomp and splendor, lie veiled in the form of mummies. He had been told by the wise man that if she laid her head on the breast of one of them, from the head she would learn where to find life and recovery for her father. She had performed all this, and in a dream had learnt that she must bring home to her father the lotus flower, which grows in the deep sea, near the moors and heath in the Danish land. The very place and situation had been pointed out to her, and she was told that the flower would restore her father to health and strength. And therefore, 
she had gone forth from the land of Egypt, flying over to the open marsh and the wild moor in the plumage of a swan. The papa and mama storks knew all this, and we also know it now. We know, too, that the marsh king has drawn her down to himself, and that to the loved ones at home she is forever dead. One of the wisest of them said, as the stork mama also said, that in some way she would, after all, manage to succeed, and so at last they comforted themselves with this hope, and would wait patiently. In fact, they could do nothing better. I should like to get away the swan's feathers from those two treacherous princesses, said the papa stork. Then, at least, they would not be able to fly over again to the wild moor and do more wickedness. I can hide the two suits of feathers over yonder till we find some use for them. But where will you put them, asked the mama stork. In our nest on the moor. I and the young ones will carry them by turns during our flight across, and as we return, should they prove too heavy for us, we shall be sure to find plenty of places on the way in which we can conceal them till our next journey. Certainly one suit of swan's feathers would be enough for the princess, but two are always better. In those northern countries no one can have too many traveling wrappers. No one will thank you for it, said Stork Mama. But you are master, and excepting at breeding time, I have nothing to say. In the Viking's castle on the wild moor, to which the storks directed their flight in the following spring, the little maiden still remained. They had named her Helga, which was rather too soft a name for a child with a temper like hers, although her form was still beautiful. Every month this temper showed itself in sharper outlines, and in the course of years, while the storks still made the same journeys in autumn to the hill and in spring to the moors, the child grew to be almost a woman, and before anyone seemed aware of it, she was a wonderfully beautiful maiden of sixteen. The casket was splendid, but the contents were worthless. She was indeed wild and savage, even in those hard, uncultivated times. It was a pleasure to her to splash about with her white hands, in the warm blood of the horse which had been slain for sacrifice. In one of her wild moods, she bit off the head of the black cock, which the priest was about to slay for the sacrifice. To her foster father, she said one day, If thine enemy were to pull down thine house about thine ears, if thine enemy were to pull down thine house about thy ears, and thou shouldst be sleeping in unconscious security, I would not wake thee, even if I had the power, I would never do it, for my ears still tingle with the blow that thou gavest me years ago. I have never forgotten it. But the Viking treated her words as a joke. He was, like everyone else, bewitched with her beauty, and knew nothing of the change in the form and temper of Helga at night. Without a saddle, she would sit on a horse as if she were a part of it, while it rushed along at full speed, nor would she spring from its back, even when it quarreled with other horses and bit them. She would often leap from the high shore into the sea with all her clothes on and swim to meet the Viking when his boat was steering home towards the shore. She once cut off a long lock of her beautiful hair and twisted it into a string for her bow. If a thing is to be done well, said she, I must do it myself. The Viking's wife was, for the time in which she lived, 
a woman of strong character and will. But compared to her daughter, she was a gentle, timid woman, and she knew that a wicked sorcerer had the terrible child in his power. It was sometimes as if Helga acted from sheer wickedness, for often when her mother stood on the threshold of the door or stepped into the yard, she would seat herself on the brink of the well, wave her arms and legs in the air, and suddenly fall right in. Here she was able, from her frog nature, to dip and dive about in the water of the deep well, until at last she would climb forth like a cat and come back into the hall dripping with water, so that the green leaves that were strewed on the floor were whirled round and carried away by the streams that flowed from her. But there was one time of the day which placed a check upon Helga. It was the evening twilight. When this hour arrived, she became quiet and thoughtful and allowed herself to be advised and led. Then also a secret feeling seemed to draw her towards her mother. And as usual, when the sun set and the transformation took place, both in body and mind, inwards and outwards, she would remain quiet and mournful, with her form shrunk together in the shape of a frog. Her body was much larger than those animals ever are, and on this account it was much more hideous in appearance, for she looked like a wretched dwarf, with a frog's head and webbed fingers. Her eyes had a most piteous expression. She was without a voice, excepting a hollow, croaking sound like the smothered sobs of a dreaming child. Then the Viking's wife took her on her lap and forgot the ugly form as she looked into the mournful eyes and often said, I could wish that thou wouldst always remain my dumb frog child, for thou art too terrible when thou art clothed in a form of beauty. And the Viking woman wrote runic characters against sorcery and spells of sickness and threw them over the wretched child, but they did no good. One can scarcely believe that she was ever small enough to lie in the cup of the water lilies at the Papa Stork, and now she is grown up, and the image of her Egyptian mother, especially about the eyes. Ah, we shall never see her again. Perhaps she has not discovered how to help herself as you and the wise men said she would. Year after year have I flown across and across the moor, but there was no sign of her being still alive. Yes, and I may as well tell you that each year when I arrived a few days before you to repair the nest and put everything in its place, I've spent a whole night flying here and there over the marshy lake, as if I had been an owl or a bat, but all to no purpose. The two suit of swan's plumage, which I and the young ones dragged over here from the land of the Nile, are of no use. Trouble enough it was for us to bring them here in three journeys, and now they are lying at the bottom of the nest. And if a fire should happen to break out, and the wooden house be burnt down, they would be destroyed. And our good nest would be destroyed too, said the mama stork. But you think less of that than of your plumage stuff and your more princess. Go and stay with her in the marsh if you like. You are a bad father to your own children, as I have told you already, when I hatched my first brood. I only hope neither we nor our children may have an arrow sent through our wings, owing to that wild girl. Helga does not know in the least what she is about. We have lived in this house longer than she has. She should think of that 
and we have never forgotten our duty. We have paid every year our toll of a feather, an egg, and a young one, as it is only right we should do. You don't suppose I can wander about the courtyard or go everywhere as I used to do in old times? I can do it in Egypt, where I can be a companion of the people without forgetting myself. But here I cannot go and peep into the pots and kettles as I do there. No, I can only sit up here and feel angry with that girl, the little wretch. And I'm angry with you, too. You should have left her lying in the water, Lily. Then no one would have known anything about her. You are far better than your conversation, said the Papa Stork. I know you better than you know yourself. And with that, he gave a hop and flapped his wings twice proudly. Then he stretched his neck and flew, or rather soared away, without moving his outspread wings. He went on for some distance, and then he gave a great flap with his wings and flew on his course at a rapid rate, his head and neck bending proudly before him, while the sun's rays fell on his glossy plumage. He is the handsomest of them all, said the mama stork as she watched him, but I won't tell him so. Early in the autumn, the Viking again returned home laden with spoil and bringing prisoners with him. Among them was a young Christian priest, one of those who condemned the gods of the north. Often lately there had been, both in hall and chamber, a talk of the new faith which was spreading far and wide in the south, and which, through the means of the holy Ansgarius, had already reached as far as Hedeby on the Shai. Even Helga had heard of this belief in the teachings of one, who for the love of mankind and for their redemption had given up his life. But to her all this had, as it were, gone in one ear and out the other. It seemed that she only stood the meaning of the word love. When, in the form of a miserable frog, she crouched together in the corner of the sleeping chamber. But the Viking's wife had listened to the wonderful story and had felt moved by it. On their return after this voyage, the men spoke of the beautiful temples built of polished stone, which had been raised for the public worship of this holy love. Some vessels, curiously formed of massive gold, had been brought home among the booty. There was a peculiar fragrance about them all, for they were incense vessels, which had been swung before the altars in the temples by the priests. In the deep stony cellars of the castle, the young priest was immured, and his hands and feet tied together with strips of bark. The Viking's wife considered him as beautiful as Balder, and his distress raised her pity. But Helga said he ought to have ropes fastened to his heels and be tied to the tails of wild animals. I would let the dogs loose after him, she said, over the moor and across the heath. Hurrah! That would be a spectacle for the gods, and better still to follow in its course. But the Viking would not allow him to die such a death as that, especially as he was the disowned and despiser of the high gods. In a few days he had decided to have him offered as a sacrifice on the bloodstone and the grove. For the first time a man was to be sacrificed here. Helga begged to be allowed to sprinkle the assembled people with the blood of the priest. She sharpened her glittering knife, and when one of the great savage dogs who were running about the Viking's castle in great numbers sprang towards her, she thrust the knife into his side, merely, as she said, to prove its sharpness. The Viking's wife looked at the wild, badly disposed girl with great sorrow. 
And when night came on, and her daughter's beautiful form and disposition were changed, she spoke in eloquent words to Helga of the sorrow and deep grief that was in her heart. The ugly frog in its monstrous shape stood before her and raised its brown, mournful eyes to her face, listening to her words and seeming to understand them with the intelligence of a human being. Never once to my lord and husband has a word passed my lips of what I have to suffer through you. My heart is full of grief about you, said the Viking's wife. The love of a mother is greater and more powerful than I ever imagined. But love never entered thy heart. It is cold and clammy, like the plants on the moor. Then the miserable form trembled. It was as if those words had touched an invisible bond between body and soul, for great tears stood in the eyes. A bitter time will come for thee at last, continued the Viking's wife, and it will be terrible for me too. It had been better for thee if thou hadst been left on the high road, or the cold night wind to lull thee to sleep. And the Viking's wife shed bitter tears and went away in anger and sorrow, passing under the partition of firs, which hung loose over the beam and divided the hall. The shriveled frog still sat in the corner alone. Deep silence reigned around. At intervals, a half-stifled sigh was heard from its inmost soul. It was the soul of Helga. It seemed in pain, as if a new life were arising in her heart. Then she took a step forward and listened, then stepped again forward, and seized with her clumsy hands the heavy bar which was laid across the door. Gently and with much trouble, she pushed back the bar, as silently lifted the latch, and then took up the glimmering lamp which stood in the antechamber of the hall. It seemed as if a stronger will than her own gave her strength. She removed the iron bolt from the closed cellar door and slipped into the prisoner. He was slumbering. She touched him with her cold, moist hand, and as he awoke and caught sight of the hideous form, he shuddered as if he beheld a wicked apparition. She drew her knife, cut through the bonds which confined his hands and feet, and beckoned for him to follow her. He uttered some holy names and made the sign of the cross, while the form maintained motionless by his side. We'll continue our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always looking for great stories like this one to feature on the show. Send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>